We'll hear argument first this morning in case 087412, Graham v. Florida. Mr. Gowdy. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, sentencing an adolescent to life without any possibility of parole condemns him to die in prison and rejects any hope that he will change for the better. This sentence, like the death penalty, cruelly ignores the inherent qualities of youth and the differences between adolescents and adults. Are you Ad- urging um, that in all cases, including homicide cases, or are you drawing the line at homicide? We're, we're drawing the line, Your Honor, at, at non-homicide cases because we recognize under the Eighth Amendment that we must look at societal consensus, and society has said that murder is different, and it has said that in the sentencing practices as demonstrated by the fact that outside of Florida, judges and juries have imposed this sentence on just 30 non-homicide offenders in just six states. 38 states allow this sentence, though, don't they? 38, 30, I know you have a little dispute, but the vast majority of states allow the imposition of this sentence. The vast majority allow it, and they have for some time, and we believe that the fact that it's been allowed for so long and imposed so rarely, as the states themselves have admitted, is, uh, is strong evidence of societal consensus. You would have thought that would be strong evidence that they appreciate the gravity of the sentence and the particular circumstances of juveniles and therefore only impose it rarely. Your Honor, I, w- I, would, I would disagree. I would, if, if there's 30, 31 states that have allowed it and have never imposed it, um, in, in our judgment, that's, that's evidence that it's very unusual, and you couple that. No sentence can be, can be imposed rarely. No, Your Honor. It has when to a all- sentence is imposed rarely, it becomes unconstitutional. No, Your Honor. That's not your position. What, what, what our is position is that you're looking at two things. One is it cruel. It's cruel because life without parole is unique, is particularly cruel to adolescents because it, it, it gives up on the adolescent and determines that he's forever unfit to live in civil society. It's crueler to him. I don't see why it's any crueler to an adolescent than it is to a, what, what, where do you draw the line? At 21? We draw the line at 18, the same line that the court drew in Roper, and it's cruel because of the inherent the inherent qualities of youth. And you're making a, a per se argument. No, you can imagine someone who's a month short of his 18th birthday, and you're saying that no matter what this person does, uh, commits the most horrible series of non-homicide offenses that you can imagine, a whole series of brutal rapes assaults that rendered the, the victim paraplegic but not dead, no matter what. person is sentenced, shows no remorse whatsoever. Worst case you can possibly imagine, cannot — that person must at some point be made eligible for parole. That's your argument. Your Honor, the, that, that's correct. The life — yes, a life with parole sentence would be constitutional. And that may mean that person you described still spends his entire life in prison. But life with parole gives some hope to the adolescent who has an inherent capacity to change. It gives him some hope that later in time he may be released. If we, so agree with you, if we agree with you, at what point must the parole consideration be given? There's a suggestion in your brief that maybe the Colorado statute, which says that a person can get parole consideration after 40 years, would be constitutional. Is that your position? 
Your, Your Honor, our position is that it should be left up to the states to decide. We think that the, con- the Colorado uh, provision would probably be constitutional. Um, we'll have to see what different states do. I mean, but, but yes, even that long amount of time would give at least some hope to the what athletic about, offender. What if it's the pursuant to the usual state parole system, and it turns out uh, that grants parole to one out of 20 applicants? I think all that would have to be required, Your Honor, I think that would be sufficient. All that would have to be required is a meaningful opportunity to the adolescent offender to demonstrate that he has, in fact, changed, reformed, and is now fit to live in society. That's all. That's all we're asking for. We're not asking that it be automatic right to get back out. If Terrence Graham or It seems to me that your your argument suggests that you're — quite rightly, focusing on the particular facts that have life without parole. But if you concede that it's all right to have a sentence of 50 years and then a consideration where one out of 20 people are granted parole, I, I think it suggests that the line you would draw is, is pretty artificial. Or certainly suggests that the next case we'll get is somebody with life with parole after 50 years. Your Honor, first, I'm, I'm not conceding that it was 50. The, the question I was asked about 40. But I understand — Are you saying there's something in the Eighth Amendment that draws a distinction between 40 and 50 in that case? Your, Your Honor, I'm saying that this sentence that we're here today before is unequivocally, unmistakably a condemnation that you will never be released from prison. And so this sentence clearly falls on the line of being cruel because it tells an adolescent — for an adolescent mistake, you can never live in civil society. There will be other sentences that people will argue are the equivalent of this sentence. And, and people may argue that with a 50-year sentence. But this sentence here is unequivocal, and there's no question that it's cruel because of, of the fact that it rejects any hope that the adolescent can be changed. Is it I'm interested in, in, in two different things, and you can address them during the course of your argument. One is the assumption of the argument seems to be that there are in place parole in throughout all the states, parole systems, uh, which are effective, uh, which are operating, and that they have the capacity to make accurate judgments about rehabilitation. What can I read? Uh, what, what studies do you have to that, that comment on that? Secondly, unrelated, at some point, I think you ought to talk about the procedural bar, which is something you go over very, 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 very. Oh, let's see. No, that's solid. Pardon me. That's solid. Yeah. With leave, I'll let Mr. Stevenson answer about the procedural bar. But on your first question, Your Honor, I would point you to the amicus brief filed by the uh, various correctional officers um, that talk about the types of programs that can be done. I think that that has, uh, is very thorough and, and would answer it far better than I can in a couple minutes up here. But, yes, to answer short, we, we believe that, that the parole systems in place can be effective to do this. And in all seven states where there are currently non-homicide juvenile offenders, they all have functioning parole systems. Even Florida has it, even though it, it abolished parole in 1983. Florida still has 6,000 parole-eligible inmates, and last year they heard over 17 — they made over 1,700 parole determinations. So the, the administrative burden to the state of adding — Florida has abolished parole, has it not, going it's, forward? 
Going forward, it has They're abolished no parole. So eventually, if, if things are allowed to take their course, the, the Florida Parole Board will go out of business. And Florida could choose to make that sentence and instead impose a sentence, as its prosecutor recommended here, a 30-year determinant sentence. If Florida doesn't want to reinstitute parole, we're not saying it has to do parole. That's just one of several constitutional options. What, what would you do if there were a, a crime spree and there were different jurisdictions? One jurisdiction imposes for 35 years, the next jurisdiction for another 35 years, to be served consecutively. Your, well, Your, Your Honor, I, I think that the, the, the you would get into the question about whether that sentence is the equivalent of life without parole. And there could be an argument made that if you — obviously, if you sentence someone to 150, 200 years, there's no conceivable hope of ever release, if 150 years without parole. So the second jurisdiction has the obligation, but not the first? Is that the way it works? Um, I would think that the, the — if, if you had that — and I'm on a — I would think that the, that the judge making that uh, sentence would have to take that into consideration, that this sentence is going to — Based on all adolescent conduct, it has to be all adolescent conduct, not if some of the conduct is post-juvenile. But, yes, I, I would think the, that the second sentencing judge would need to take that into consideration. So he, he could sentence uh, up to uh, one year before the life expectancy of the, uh, of the person in prison? That would be okay. You're, I, I wouldn't say that would be okay, Your Honor. I think that well, — Well, what's he supposed to do? How many years can he give? I, I, think, I think there has to be some yeah, — I, I obviously does. What do you propose? I propose, you know, one year before his life expectancy. Your, Your Honor, I think that would be coming so close to the, the constitutional line, it would, be, it, would, it would be difficult to see that's constitutional. But, oh, what, but one year before life is also unconstitutional. Your Honor, I'm, I'm — Two years before life? <laughs> Your, Your Honor, there will definitely be a, a difficult line to draw at that case. Life without parole, though, is unequivocal. And even that sentence that you're describing, there is some difference between it and life without parole, because only life without parole makes the unequivocal assessment that the adolescent cannot be returned to civil society. We have, you are arguing for a categorical rule. Yes. Your, your friend on the other side is arguing for a categorical rule, always permissible. But we have a precedent that suggests in an in individual case you assess the proportionality of the sentence uh, to the crime. Now, we know from Roper uh, that death is different, and we know from Roper that juveniles are different. Wouldn't it make sense to incorporate the consideration of the juvenile status into the proportionality review? So that if you do have a case where it's the 17-year-old who's one week shy of his 18th birthday and it's the most grievous crime spree you can imagine, you can determine that in that case life without parole may not be disproportionate. But if it's, and I know you would argue that these are the facts here, if it's a less uh, grievous crime and there is, for example, uh, a younger uh, defendant involved, then in that case maybe it is disproportionate. Why, why doesn't that seem more sensitive? And it avoids all of the line-drawing problems we've been discussing. Well, two things. First, Your Honor, Roper states and the science and it states it based on the science that at that age we cannot make a determination 
about whether or not the adolescent will or will not perform. Even an expert psychologist, psychiatrist cannot well, do it. I understand. It. But, but so, I don't think they'll say that we can't make that determination um, uh, at 17 years, 51 months, but we can make that determination at 18 years. Uh, well, anywhere you draw the line, Honor, you're going to come up with an example where you're one day before and one day after, and the court in Roper struggled with where to draw the line between maturity and immaturity, and it concluded, rightly so, to draw the line at 18 based on both the science and the legislative determinations. But that's because, as they, as they told us, death is different. And you do, once you decide that, you do have to draw a line somewhere. I'm just wondering why we have to go all the way in with you or all the way with your opponent when our precedent allows us to consider uh, an issue of this sort on a case-by-case basis. I think it's because adolescents are different. Adolescents are different in that we can't tell at this age whether they're going to reform or not. And all we're proposing is that an adolescent not necessarily be released, but that he be given a later opportunity. And it, and, and it boils — it just comes down to adolescents are different, Your Honor, and the determination can't be made at age 17, even for the most heinous crimes that are committed. Is there any difference in the, the terms of incarceration — uh, making this harsher than otherwise. I think you suggested in in your brief that educational and vocational training is not given to people who are in for life without parole because they will never be out on the street, so they don't need to be transitioned back. It, if I understand your question, would it be different if those type of uh, programs are made available to life. My question is, first, you, you say that they're not available. Yeah. Is that that's Yes. Right? Yes, that is generally true. And, the, and the, the, the very website that the state of Florida cites makes a point of saying that the programs are for the purpose of reentry into society. And so those are obviously the opposite of what life without parole is. You're never going to reenter into society. And it's generally true that those programs are not available to offenders who get life without parole. And, and, and that's what makes the sentence so particularly cruel, to give up on a kid at that point in his life. Um, so what are the terms of incarceration? They just stay in their cells and? Well, Your Honor, I, I think it varies, obviously, by facility by facility. Um, but the sentence means you're going to stay in your cell and die there. You're going to stay in your cell for 60, 70 years, whenever you reach your natural death, and die there. Um, um, you, you know, they, they, uh, they do have some limited freedoms, as the state of Florida has pointed out, the same types of freedoms that people on death row have. But ultimately, both sentences mean that you're going to die in a state-controlled institution. Uh, and they're very hopeless. I, I don't think the same kind of freedom that people on death row have? I, I well, the, the state makes the point in their brief, Your Honor, that you have the right to uh, exercise your religion. You have, the, you have the right to petition the courts. Aren't they released into the general population for exercise, for, which I don't think uh, death row inmates are? Your, Your Honor, I, I, obviously everything varies facility by facility. But well, I doubt whether this varies. I, I, I don't know of any principle where if you're in for life, you're in solitary. Well, I'm not I'm — not, you're correct. I'm not suggesting they're in solitary confinement, but they are locked up for the rest of their life, and they're not allowed to rejoin civil society, 
even if, as some of the former juvenile offenders who filed a brief in this case, can demonstrate that they become model citizens. Why isn't the, 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 this most sensible way to deal with the, the problem that you're raising, the one that the Chief Justice suggested, to permit uh, as applied proportionality challenges that take into account the particular circumstances of the juvenile in question, rather than this per se rule that you're, that you're advocating, which would deprive the State of Florida from reaching the judgment that there are some people, there are some juveniles, some individuals who are short of their 18th birthday, uh, who, who cannot, who, who deserve imprisonment in, uh, life imprisonment without parole. Some of the, the actual cases that, in which this sentence has been imposed in Florida involve factual situations that are so horrible that I couldn't have imagined them if I hadn't actually seen them. You're raping an eight-year-old girl and burying her alive. Are you familiar with that case? I'm not familiar with that particular case. No. Uh, raping a woman in front of her 12-year-old son and then forcing the son to engage in sexual conduct with the mother. Are you familiar with that case? Yes, Your Honor, I'm familiar with that case. Your, Your Honor, the, 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 the reason, first of all, the Court has said and said so clearly in, in Kennedy that murder is different. In the Kennedy decision, you also said horrible facts. A, someone who raped their stepdaughter. But yet this Court drew a line and exempted from capital punishment adult defendants who commit horrible crimes. But to get to the core of your question as to why not do it on a case-by-case basis, because you can only make the determination about the adolescent later in life. And I, we would agree that there should be a case-by-case determination as to, as to whether or not that offender should spend his whole life in prison. But we say it needs to happen later, once he's matured, once he's reached past adulthood. Because you, when you're you assume, doesn't your argument assume that the only purpose of punishment is uh, deterrence in the sense of protecting society from this purpose, a person in the future? So that, you know, once that's no longer a problem, we should let this, uh, this person out. But that isn't the only purpose of punishment that, that we've acknowledged. Uh, one of the purposes is retribution, punishment for just perfectly horrible actions. And I don't know why that uh, value of retribution uh, diminishes to the point of zero when, when it's a person who's, you know, 17 years, nine months old. We're, we're not suggesting it goes to the point of zero. We're not, and we concede the state has a right to, to exact retribution from the juvenile offender. Uh, and in this case, 30 years would have been a lot of retribution for, for Terrence Graham. Most states didn't, don't think so, or many states don't think so. We, we, Your, Your Honor, we, we, but a juvenile is not only does he have an inherent capacity to grow, he's less culpable. And so to exact the most, for, for a non-homicide crime, whether you're adult or juvenile, this is the, 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 the most severe punishment you can receive. And to exact that most severe punishment for a less culpable offender that the court has recognized as a less culpable offender doesn't, is, is too much retribution. We're not saying the state can't exercise retribution. But that life without parole is, is too Mr. much. Mr. Gotti, can I ask this question? If, yes, if uh, uh, your client in this case had been processed in the juvenile system instead of the adult system, 
What would the maximum penalty he could have received been? He would have had to been released when he was 22 years old. So the choice is between that short a term and, and, and an indefinite term? No, 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 Your Honor. We, we can see that the State of Florida may continue to prosecute juveniles in adult court. And, and that makes sense in order to get a term of uh, years that is longer than you can get in juvenile court. And in this case, if the judge had gone along, along with the prosecutor's recommendation, it would have meant a 30-year sentence for my client, which would have been far longer than he could have gotten in the juvenile court. The, Worse, the, the logic in Roper was very straightforward. It says death is reserved for the worst of the worst. I think that was the quote. We know that juveniles are not the worst of the worst for the reasons you've articulated, that they're not fully developed, don't have moral sense to the same extent as an adult. But life without parole is not reserved for the worst of the worst. And so it seems to me that the logic of our precedent suggests um, uh, that you can't uh, necessarily rely on the juvenile status to exempt them from a penalty that's not reserved for the worst of the worst, but perhaps it makes sense to consider in a particular instance whether the penalty is disproportionate, given the juvenile characteristics that you suggest. Well, I just will come back to the point that I think life with parole would be a long sentence, uh, and I don't, I don't see how you can do it on a case-by-case basis at age 17. You can is there, certainly is there, do it. Is so, there disproportionality review generally in Florida? and particularly for juvenile offenders? There's no, no. Under Florida law, there's no basis to challenge a sentence as being excessive or disproportionate um, as long as it's at the statutory maximum. Well, well, there wasn't prior to our death penalty jurisprudence either. And I thought we reviewed uh, proportionality as a matter of federal law in the Solem case. Right. I guess I, I understood Justice Ginsburg's question as, as if under Florida law. Yes. Right. Can you? Well, so did I. But we're talking about constitutionality under the Eighth Amendment. Right. Which is well, federal law. I guess the compare. I know under federal under federal sentencing law, statutory law, there's a reasonableness review, and I, I was I guess what I was trying to draw the comparison with, and maybe I'm not answering the question correctly, that we don't have that in Florida. Yes, that's well, we, what I meant. Whether you'd we, have to create. A, a procedure that does not exist in in Florida for proportionality review. Well, there would it would have to be strictly federal law. It would have to be a procedure. And if you do this case by case suggestion, it would it would have to be strictly based on federal constitutional law. Oh, well, sure, but you can make that claim in Florida courts, can't you? Can't you, you, you can, argue in Florida courts that this sentence is disproportionate and violates the Eighth Amendment? Whereupon the Florida courts would have to decide. Wouldn't they have to decide? You, that you could make that argument, and and we do we do. I should point out to the court that we do have a fallback position in our papers, based on Mr. Graham's uh, offense of armed burglary, and and the fact that in only two states could Mr. Graham have gotten the sentence, and that the only state that has actually imposed it for a first time armed burglary is Florida. But there's and a th- problem with that argument in this case because the sentencing judge made it quite plain that he was treating Graham as a recidivist, not as a first-time offender. He said Graham got a very light sentence, just 12 months in detention, and then three years probation. And the judge said, now, you better toe the line, or else you could be put away for a long time. 
well, and then he committed it really was the sentence was for the later activities even though they were improved beyond a reasonable doubt i think that uh, graham admitted to a couple of these to, to more armed robberies isn't that so he he admitted to the police and and i don't want to get too much in the facts but that even if your honor concedes that he was if he was convicted of all those uh, crimes which he was not convicted of but the judge as you say correctly relied upon for the sentence um, then we only have two states that we know of that has imposed life without parole for a recidivist robbery or burglary crime and that's california and florida um, and we've set, we've set forth that argument to give the court that option but we believe our primary argument, the categorical rule, is, is more logical because of the fact that you can't do a case-by-case -case determination of an adolescent at the time based on his juvenile offense. And it may be in these horrible crimes. But you crimes, haven't answered Justice Alito's point, which is what's the difference a month before he's 18 and a month after? What makes us more capable at the 18th birthday to, to affirm a judgment that someone can't be, rehabil can't be rehabilitated. There's not much difference, Your Honor, but the line has to be drawn somewhere. And society, as this Court recognized in Roper, has generally drawn that line at 18 as well, between A line has to be drawn somewhere only if we accept your approach, that there has to be a categorical exemption. A line does not have to be drawn somewhere if you adopt the approach of case-by-case case, decide whether this is proportional. Given how old the, the individual was, given the nature of the crimes and all of the other factors, you don't have to draw a line then. And well, that's the attraction of that approach. You, I, I think the base the, the, I will just ask to conclude and then I'll sit down. Based on, the, on what scientists have told us, to the categorical approach is the most logical approach because we can't tell which adolescents are going to change and which aren't. Thank you, Mr. Gowdy. Mr. Makar. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The categorical rule that Petitioner seeks here would undermine what Florida and other states have adopted in terms of juvenile justice. In particular, it would go against three major trends, that being strong punishment for serious violent crimes by juveniles. Second trend, transfer laws allowing juveniles to be treated as adults. Those laws have been enacted in the last 15 years. I, 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 didn't, I didn't hear this. I'm sorry. Uh, the three trends are the strong punishment for juveniles uh, that states have enacted over the last 15, 20 years, the various transfer and waiver laws that states have enacted over the last 10, 15, 20 years, allowing juveniles to be transferred into adult court. And then finally, what is really at issue is parole. Parole has been eliminated uh, in many states. Fifteen states have totally eliminated it in the last 10, 15 years. So what they're seeking is a categorical rule that goes against the national consensus and the national trend. The concession here was that Graham's sentence uh, could be even up to life as long as there's the possibility of parole. We believe that's very telling. In their brief, they point out that Graham could have been sentenced to something just short of his actuarial life. His actuarial life is around 64 years old, which means about a 46-year sentence. And the uh, standard that we uh, suggest here is that there sh cannot be any categorical rule for the reasons Justice Alito pointed out. We well, have but you're arguing for a categorical rule of your own. <laughs> you're saying that under a 
under juveniles under the age of 18, uh, what? It's never, it can be never determinative that they're a juvenile in setting the sentence as a matter of federal law? Well, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, we do agree in Florida and other states as well that age does matter, and we ask that there be three things that the Court look at. First, look at the legislative structure. Florida's structure doesn't Florida structures a very balanced, thoughtful approach in waiving children into the adult court only when it's a violent crime and only under certain, uh, when certain ages are in play. Look at the age. It does play a role. Uh, the judicial discretion plays a role. The trial judge asks, is, is there a minimum age when a juvenile can be transferred to, to adult uh, uh, procedures? It's a three-tiered system, Justice Stevens. Uh, and well, let me go to in okay. one. Is there a minimum? Y- yes. Yeah. The way in which — Is that an arbitrary line or — how do you how do we know it shouldn't be higher or lower than the line? Well, the, the legislature has set the line at 14, 15 for certain crimes and 16, 17 for others. And then for indictment, where it goes to a grand jury, there is no age limitation. That's been on our books for the better part of 50, 60 years, allowing indictment, uh, allowing the grand jury to make a decision about whether the particular juvenile uh, shall be uh, brought into the adult court. So is there any, what is your objection? to an approach that whenever when you're dealing with life without parole for the reasons that your brother has articulated uh, you must as a matter of federal law uh, consider the juvenile status of the uh, defendant uh, before that sentence is imposed well, in other words not a not a categorical rule that it automatically makes a difference but not a categorical rule that it can never make a difference well sure and as I say, there's the three factors I would ask the Court to look at. First, the structure that we have here in Florida, which many states have, that deal with the age. Age does matter. Ninety-nine out of 100 juvenile offenders in our system do not go into adult court, and an even smaller percentage of that ultimately get into the adult sanctions. The trial judges in Florida, unless, unless it's a very violent crime, have some discretion to sentence as to age. If you look at the transcript here uh, at the, in the joint appendix, the trial judge here struggled with this, struggled with age, and said juvenile sanctions are inappropriate, youthful, offenders are, youthful offender sanctions are inappropriate, I'm going to sentence you to, to adult. Yes, could, could I interrupt with one question? Isn't it correct that the age is relevant on whether or not to transfer the person to the adult system? But once he's in the adult system, age is entirely immaterial. That's, that's not accurate, uh, Justice Stevens. Under the uh, statute, 985.226, 227, and 225, we have the system in which the, uh, the, uh, the grounds are set for when juveniles can be either mandatorily or discretionarily brought into the adult system. And then under the statute, 985, the punishment is graduated. In other words, for the lower offenses, the juvenile sanctions must be considered and the youthful offender sanctions must be considered. It's only in certain limited instances, like indictment, where it's a life offense, where the juvenile has been indicted for life, that the trial judge is forced to do adult sanctions. In this case, Graham was under the discretionary direct, direct file, meaning that the uh, prosecutor had discretion whether to bring the case or not. Brought it into the adult system, Graham accepted being processed as an adult and was put on probation. And I still don't understand. Just make sure I'm, I get the point correct. After the decision has been made to, to have the prosecutor in the adult system, at that, after that decision has been made, is the age of the defendant a relevant factor in sentencing? The age is — they get a pre-sentence report. The age is woven in. Well, I no understand, sh- but statutorily is a matter of — Well, the statute doesn't specifically say the trial judge it, it, The answer is no. It's not, under the statutes, it's totally irrelevant after he's been transferred to the adult states. Is that correct? 
Not exactly, because the range of remedies the trial judge can impose is based upon what method by which the juvenile was transferred or waived into the, the adult court. In Graham's case, he was allowed to have juvenile and youthful offender sanctions considered because of his age. I mean, that's the, what, that's the way the You mean the, the trial judge under Florida law does not have discretion to uh, choose a lower sentence because of the uh, tender years of the defendant? Well, absolutely the trial judge does. And you can see the trial judge here grappling with that. No, uh, but the statute doesn't draw any distinctions once he's in, in the adult uh, universe. I, I guess the answer to your question is there is no specific statute that says the trial judge shall consider age specifically. And, and there's there, — well, I guess that answers my question. He's not required to. Uh, as a matter of federal law. He can say, I am not considering the fact that this is a juvenile because I think his crime should be treated as an adult crime. No, I mean, certainly not under any federal constitutional principle I'm aware of. Uh, well, that's what we're arguing about. Right, right. Well, well, certainly here, I mean, what, what we would say that, uh, assuming there is no categorical rule and the Court decides to go into the proportionality uh, balance here, um, we think that certainly Graham's offense uh, certainly is off the scales and would be grossly just probably that's, be. That's one of the, the problems. That the individual sentencing judge might think that Graham is a very bad uh, individual, but the prosecutor had a different <coughs> judgment of it. And Florida doesn't have any kind of proportionality review. It doesn't have any review, appellate review, of the sentences. Well, this judge, I think, surprised everyone in the courtroom with the with the sentence. Certainly, it was far beyond what the prosecutor recommended. Well, the prosecutor recommended 30 years. That's that's correct. And the, the judge here entered life. As I say, that translates into a sec- essentially a 46-year actuarial life sentence. That was within the trial judge's discretion, and particularly given the seriousness of the offenses that Graham committed. We're talking about violence, and violence does matter. This Court has said, and certainly in oral argument in Solem and others, that the violence versus nonviolent acts plays a major role in sentencing. It sure plays a major role as well when it comes to juveniles. Um, I, I don't uh, read Roper to say that it takes off the table uh, lengthy sentences for violent crimes by juveniles. Counsel. Yes, do you think that it categorically violates the Eighth Amendment for a 10-year-old to be sentenced to life without parole? Um, well, the answer to that is it certainly raises a concern about the age. Age does matter. and As the age goes down, it does. So once it matters, the question for, for me is, help me draw the line. If 10 is, in my judgment, too early, why isn't 14, 16, or 18? Meaning, why should a four, as someone below the age of 14 be sentenced to life without parole? That's the, that's the Sullivan case. Right. But it begs the question, which is, age is, matters a lot. And to take on your adversary's argument that it sure. matters a lot because this is a less culpable person. Sure. It matters. I think it does matter. And I th- it matters from a legislative perspective, from a judicial perspective, and from an Eighth Amendment perspective. What about historical perspective? I mean, you might appeal to the fact that at common law, which was in effect when the Cruel and Unusual Punishments Clause was adopted, 12 years was, was viewed as the uh, year when a, when a person reaches the age of reason. And, and uh, the death penalty could not be inflicted on anyone. 
Well, certainly that historical perspective has. And all felonies were the death penalty. Sure. And it has importance. To, to some extent, the states have displaced the common law with their juvenile justice systems, and we, as I say, I believe Florida is, is very balanced. Going back to your question, uh, Justice Sotomayor, I think that the way age plays a role is that we, in our system in Florida, we have no one under the age of 13, and that sort of provides. You have us. no one. What was your answer? I'm sorry. No, no one in our system is under the age of 13 with life without parole. I mean, there, there are but very is that because judges haven't chosen to impose it or because your legal system doesn't permit it? No, the, the legal system permits it. I, I, How young could the youngest person in Florida be to be prosecuted as an adult and be eligible for life well, without parole? I'm sorry. Uh, under the indictment statute, there is no age limitation. So, so a five-year-old could be put that, away from life. That's theoretically. We would hope that the system would not allow that to occur and that that would be certainly violative of the In, in the your community. earlier response to Justice Sotomayor's question, you said age certainly matters as, as, a, as a matter of what law? In other words, I understood your submission to be that there was nothing in federal law that requires different consideration of age. So when you say age matters, why? Well, we suggest that it may matter in a particular case. And, and when you get into the gross disproportionality. Under the authority of what law? Age matters in a particular case because of. Well, I, th I, I think our, our country's traditions recognize it. Because of the Eighth Amendment. Well, I believe it could be certainly a part of the Eighth Amendment analysis. I think just the, uh, certainly age matters in the legislative branch, the judicial branch, executive branch. It matters that we look at the age and make considerations about it when Florida has made those considered judgments. What we're saying is that if the court decides to go down the path that's perhaps fraught with uh, more line drawing than one can imagine and, and decides that age will be a part of the proportionality, it creates serious problems. But here — No, I'm sorry. Why is that? But — if you go down on a case-by-case -case basis, there are no line-drawing problems. You just simply say age has to be considered as a matter of the Eighth Amendment. And then we apply a totality of the circumstances test, well, which means whatever seems, seems like a good idea. Well, <laughs> well we apply the proportionality review that we articulated in Harmland, in Solem, in Ewing. Well, of course, it's already there. Well, if that's applied, and even if you consider age in these cases that are before the court, they are on the violent side of the line. They are out in the uh, tail of the distribution in terms of uh, a seriousness of the offense. So it would be the same result in either case. I, I think perhaps it's not seriously suggesting that the crimes at issue here are comparable to a rape or a permanent infliction of serious disability or any of those other very violent crimes that are close to homicide that Justice Alito spoke about. There is a quantitative and qualitative difference between those. There, there is, but the legislatures make the judgment about how they're going to punish those in Florida. Well, if we, we, have, if we have already said that you can't impose death on an adult who hasn't committed a homicide, an intentional death, and so for an adult, the most serious sentence that we can give them is life without parole. Why should that same sentence be given to a juvenile who we recognize as being less capable than an adult? And why should we permit it for a crime that's not comparable to a homicide and or something akin in seriousness to that? Because it is still a very serious 
violent crime. We're talking about weapons and guns and people's lives at risk. And the legislature has made the judgment in Florida and other states to say that that type of crime. But isn't it true, and I think one of my colleagues already questioned you, that the prosecutor didn't think that this merited life without parole? Didn't the um, parole supervisor say that this young man, Mr. Graham, was compliant with other conditions of his probation? He went to school. He did other things. It does suggest some hope for him. Well, I think the prosecutor certainly offered up the 30 years, and uh, the trial judge, who, as you can tell from the the transcript, was familiar that there were these um, uh, uh, home invasions going on around our county, that there had been a task force established and so forth. The the trial judge was aware of that and the seriousness of of it. In one instance, one of the Graham's uh, co-defendants actually killed someone as a part of a home invasion. These were serious problems afflicting our community in Jacksonville. Do we know why the co-perpetrators got so their sentences were dramatically lower. Do we know why that was so? Is this as to the home invasion or the armed? Yeah. The, the home invasion, there was an 11-year sentence for the co-defendant. Yes. He helped, uh, helped and, and testified uh, and basically assisted the prosecution, so I believe he got a, a lower sentence. Because but, he assisted the prosecution. Right. The third one is in jail. Life without parole on a, on a murder charge, life without parole on the same charge Graham has for another home invasion, and then has uh, you know, other serious sentences. So he, he, for his home invasions, he's, he's life without prison. I didn't I mean, think life he without parole. The, for this very uh, offense, this home invasion, I didn't think that anyone other than Graham had gotten life without parole. Well, well Graham got life without parole, and it relates back to his armed uh, burglary with assault and battery. He got the life sentence under that charge, which was then uh, all part and parcel of the violation of probation hearing. There were these secondary, these second incidents, the home invasions, where it's Amigo Bailey was the co-defendant who got life for murder and also for armed burglary as a part of one of the home invasions. So they, you know, they got serious punishment. This is serious uh, punishment that was meted out. How do you answer the argument that unlike an adult, because of the immaturity, you can't really judge a person, judge a teenager at the point of sentencing, that it's only after a period of time has gone by and you see, has this person overcome those youthful disabilities? That's why proportionality review on the spot doesn't accommodate the, what is the driving force of the, your, uh, the petitioner's argument, is that is you can't make a judgment until years later to see how that person has, has done. Well, Justice Ginsburg, we respect that, and certainly in Roper, that was the linchpin to the decision. Here we're in a different context that deals with the, the, these, these terms of years, and uh, there, there's no constitutional right to uh, parole, and certainly that's a pure legislative decision to be made, and states have said we're not going to have parole. I suppose you could say the same thing of, of adults, of somebody over 18. You really can't tell how uh, uh, redeemable this individual is until he's in prison for some time. And therefore, you should not give anybody uh, life without parole. Right? They they may all be savable. So we should defer uh, defer. We shouldn't have any uh, 
uh, non-parole sentences. Everybody should be evaluated, which was indeed the approach that, uh, that many jurisdictions used to take. Wasn't that so? True. It, when there was parole for everybody. And it, well, and it goes to the core of the state sovereignty to decide what laws to enact. But Florida does, and every state recognize the difference between an adult and uh, a minor. That is, and you have to make the line. We have it at 18. But think of the teenager can't drink, can't drive, can't marry. There are so many limitations on children just because they are children. And, Justice Ginsburg, we ask that the same respect for our juvenile justice system be given to those laws enacted in Florida that protect the uh, the, the juveniles. It's the legislature on the ground there seeing what's going on in our state that makes these decisions about who can drive, who gets the right to have a tattoo. But they don't who, make it on a case-by-case basis. They say no juvenile can drink. No juvenile. Well, that, that's true. But at the same, by the same token, the juvenile justice system in Florida, and keep in mind we had a juvenile justice division uh, uh, department established in 1994 because of the severe problems, as we outlined in our brief, that Florida has a has committed resources and, and, and programs and so forth to the juvenile justice system. So given all of that, that what the court, I'm sorry, what the state has done as, as to age, we, that's why we say it matters. What we're concerned about is that to, to pursue the categorical rule that they seek, the court would have to, of course, abandon the various firewalls that would uh, stand between terms of years and and also uh, uh, the death penalty. But in addition, if the court decides to go down the proportionality route, my concern is the five principles in the Harmelin concurrence about the states having the ability to have diverse juvenile justice programs and not have that sort of a, uh, a lawnmower coming through and making them all uniform. Uh, the Harmelin concurrence, Justice Kennedy, talked about the deference in structuring these. And there's going to be differences. Uh, some states are going to have the most harsh laws. Um, the Eighth Amendment doesn't dictate any particular penological theory. There's great, and it, it would turn the Eighth Amendment analysis on its head to first allow this diversity among the states and allow strong medicine for certain types of violent crimes, and then to kind of compare them and say, well, gosh, Florida's unusual. It's different. And that shouldn't be the case whatsoever. If we look just at deterrence, um, my initial instinct is that the difference in life and life without life with parole and life without parole is just not a factor in deterrence. I, I don't know how I'd confirm that one way or the other, but let's, let's, let's assume that there's some basis for that intuition. Um, then insofar as the deterrence prong is, is concerned, uh, since it's not a deterrent, and if you assume that there's rehabilitation, what, what is the state's interest in keeping uh, the accused, the the, the 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 defendant, in custody for the rest of his life, if he has been rehabilitated and is no longer a real danger. What's the state's interest? Well, uh, you could say retribution, uh, but then uh, you have judges on a case by case basis uh, deciding when there should be retribution. Well, I think certainly the state of Florida's interest, as among other states, is, first of all, to punish. Certainly, I think deterrence plays a role. We recognize that deterrence may have less impact on some juveniles, but it doesn't have, it doesn't have zero impact. It does have some impact. But it seems to me the deterrence interest is quite minimal if you assume 
rehabilitation or strong evidence of rehabilitation. Well, but the deterrence goes to those who would commit the same act rather than deterring this particular individual. It goes to I others. Who the question is, will the difference between life with parole and life without parole deter anybody? I mean, any, that, that's what we're talking about. I don't think you really were urging that that difference will deter the teenager. So he might think, oh, if I commit this violent crime, then I will have life without parole. Well, I don't — I have not seen empiricism on this at all to say, you know, what, what does it really matter or not. I think that as a matter of on the street, people do talk about these things. I mean, within the — I guess there's also no empiricism on whether the committed uh, juvenile feels a lot better knowing that he will get out when he's 75 years old than he would feel knowing that he was there for life. Well, I, We I, have empirical studies about how much — that improves the spirits of the, uh, uh, the committed juvenile? I, I, I've seen none, and it, it, it goes to the question here, which is that Graham will be serving a lengthy prison term. Uh, and what he's seeking is essentially the right to get out at some point in the future, and even saying that 40 years would be. May I ask this question? There are an awful lot of amicus briefs in this case, and I haven't been able to read them all by any means. Do any of the briefs or any other materials with which you're familiar discuss the rate of the, the difference between the danger of recidivism of a young offender and one who's, say, 40 or 50 years old? I, I don't have that at, at my grasp. And it seems to me sort of, uh, as a matter of intuition, Justice Kennedy made the same sort of point. That it seems to me that, that the older people are less likely to be recidivists than the younger ones. But is, is there any empirical evidence that says that's an incorrect or correct judgment? Well, in terms of recidivism, I think, number one, violence matters. I think there are studies. I, I can't quite put my finger on that says that the violent offenders tend to recidivate more than the nonviolent. And that as one ages, uh, I think Judge Posner has written a book called uh, Aging in Old Age that talks about, in one of his chapters, about how age matters and that crime rates go down as, as, as the population ages. So, I mean, there are those sorts of things out there that well, — Along those lines, do you, and, and again, maybe this was in the amicus briefs, do you have a study about what age cohort is responsible for most violent crime? There, there are studies everywhere, and I've looked at many of them. It, it appears that it certainly increases from age 13. It goes up to 14. It keeps going up until about 16, 17, 18. It peaks. It depends on the crime, and it depends upon what jurisdiction and so forth. But it tends to peak in the early 20s, uh, late, late teens, early 20s. So, uh, so, so that's, that's, I think that's typical. One thing I'd point out, I haven't had a chance to say, the empirical issue in this, in this case I think is very important because they're asking that a constitutional rule be established on studies that have just been generated literally over the summer and that have not been subject to um, meaningful review. We have a concern with that. We think that the definitional questions that they've raised you know, about the offenses and what is life, I mean, life, the, the studies tend to focus on life, but what is life? Well, in Florida, we have some juveniles who are serving prison terms that have 50, 60, 70, 80 year sentences, but they're not included within that study. We also have, in this case, for example, Graham. He had a — let's say that the judge decided to give him 30 years for the main offense and 15 for the second. It made him consecutive. That's 45 years, Graham's actuarial life. Well, we're not sure that those 70-year sentences are any good either, because uh, your, your friend on the other side, uh, you know, is, is not willing to, to pick a number at which uh, 
the sentence amounts to uh, life without parole. Maybe a 70-year sentence does. Well, they've conceded in their brief that what this all boils down to is that if Graham wins and he gets to go back and be resentenced, that either the Florida legislature has to pass a law, reinstitute a role for this category of offenders, or the trial judge could say, okay, the actuarial table says you're going to live to be 64.2. We're going to, I'm going to sentence you to something. I thought less. that there was a parole system still functioning, so although it would be phased out over time, but for people who were incarcerated under the old regime, and I think the suggestion was that that system would take care of the handful of people, not more than that, that this decision would involve. There is still a parole board. Its its functions have been uh, minimized greatly. Has not been uh, applicable to anyone since 1983. And it would take a legislative act, or perhaps even an executive act of some sort, to reinstitute that board and to take account of these cases. Can you tell us just a little bit about the Florida correctional systems, the term, uh, policies with, res- with respect to rehabilitation programs? If they don't have parole, um, then you might say, well, they don't need rehabilitation programs, or that they might need them more. Uh, have the rehabilitation programs been? Uh, increased or decreased since the uh, phasing out of parole, or it's about the same, or are they, or are they non-existent? No, no, they're in existence. I cannot specifically answer that, Justice Kennedy, because I don't know all the different programs that are available. There's the various programs that deal with drug offenses and uh, alcoholism and so forth, and, and there, there are certain educational programs. For example, when Graham was in the county jail, that was the county versus the state, he was able to go to school. I don't believe there's anywhere near sort of the total absence, the deprivation, sort of the Weems case, sort of we put you in a cell and you rot for there for the rest of your life at all in our system. There's all these uh, various rights that we've pointed out in our brief that they're enabled. They're able to have fam- familial relationships. They can have the Maslow's hierarchy. I mean, the physiological needs are met and emotional needs and so forth are still available to be met in prison. Uh, so uh, I can't give you specific programs, Justice Kennedy, but in Florida's system, uh, they do exist. Uh, if there's no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Maycar. Uh, Mr. Gow, do you have four minutes remaining? Um, why, why is a juvenile have a constitutional right to hope, but a, an adult does not? Because a juvenile is different than an adult. Uh, uh, a juvenile is less culpable. He's, we know over time he will change and and potentially reform, as opposed to an adult, once you're fully formed, um, you are more culpable, and you don't have that same inherent capacity to change. Do you know anybody who's willing to say that as a categorical matter, that, you know, the 18th birthday is the magical date for every single person? No, Your Honor, and nobody was willing to say that in Roper, but yet the Court still drew the line at 18 for the death penalty in Roper. Because the Court up to this point has said that death is different, and the rules, the Eighth Amendment rules in capital cases are entirely different from the Eighth Amendment rules in, in all other cases. We're not, uh, we're not. We, you know, if we abandon that, then one of two things has to happen. Either the rules for non-capital cases have to change dramatically, or the rules for capital cases have to change dramatically. Unless death is different, in fact. Well, I, first, we, we're not asking that the procedural rules and the intricate individualized death penalty sentencing scheme be transported or moved over to the non-capital cases. I know you're not asking for that, but that, isn't that where this logically is going? If death is not different, then there should be uniform rules across the board. Absolutely not, Your Honor, because those rules make no sense when you're talking about adolescents who are different, because 
the, those which the court recognized in Roper, that those rules can't be applied to adolescents because we, you can't, as a sentencer, predict the future. And so though death is different, it's not different in any critical respects here because the punishment, life without parole, just like death, says that the offender is forever irredeemable, is forever unfit to live in society, and must die in prison. Why does it say that? Why doesn't it just say that in this particular case, what this individual has done is so bad that even if this person can be rehabilitated and would not present a danger to society at age 60 or 70, that this person uh, is, should be sentenced to life without parole? That, that's, that's what it means for an adult offender. Your, Your Honor, I think the only difference here is between life without parole and life with parole is that there will be a determination later at age 30 or 40 or, or sometime thereafter as to whether that is the right sentence. And the, the, the parole official, just like the judge, can consider the offense as the offender, as a juvenile. We're just saying that you can't make that complete determination at such a young age. Um, and, and you'll have a more one accurate reason, determination later. One reason states and the federal government moved uh, to abolish parole uh, in, in recent decades was with depressing regularity, prisoners released uh, uh, on parole committed crimes again. Um, and I'm just — is there any empirical evidence that tells us how often people say from 17 — 17-year-olds 17 when released — commit crimes again as opposed to 18 to 20-year-olds? Your, Your Honor, as, as my brother noted, I, I think that the evidence shows that as people get older, they're less likely to recommit crimes. Um, but isn't that I, — I remember some of those studies that — I mean, the cutoff, there's sort of a, a magic age at some point where people over the age of 35 or whatever is typically don't engage in violent activity. It, it decreases over time, uh, undoubtedly, and that's the, that supports, I think, our argument here, that, the per, that Terrence Graham, at age 47, will not be the person he, he was at age 17. Um, I see my time is up. I'll sit down. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.